0: Hey, Max, how's it going? It's going pretty well. Things are pretty busy, but overall, things are going well. How about you?
1: Yeah, busy is great. Right. It feels like live music and music projects in general are just roaring back, and all of a sudden, everybody's busy again.
0: Yeah, it's like all aspects of life busy, mm-hmm. at least on this end. But
1: And even for those that aren't necessarily uh, outperforming a ton because of uh, stricter COVID restrictions, it's things are still busy anyway it seems
0: yeah well we have a pretty fun guest coming in today yeah i'm um, super excited about you've to... you've known this person for a while right
1: uh yes we haven't really collaborated musically all that much uh but i've definitely heard him play and played with him a little bit uh from Man, more than 10 years ago. <laughs> it's been a long time.
0: Whoa, time flies.
1: It certainly
0: does. Well, this person's name is Neil Welch, and he is quite an accomplished musician and composer and arranger and really outside-the-box thinker um, Absolutely. when it comes to music in general. Um, what do you know about him? I
1: know he plays all manner of saxophones. He can play multiphonics or more multi saxophone multiphonics than any other saxophonist I can name. Though, to be fair, that is not an area of music that I spent a lot of time in.
0: And then for those who don't know, that's like two notes or more at the same time, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Which we learned, if you've been listening to this episode for a while, that flutes can do this too. Lena Keith, our last guest, uh, is also a person that's deeply involved in woodwind multiphonics.
0: It's a pretty crazy technique. Yeah, it's rad. He, yeah, he also, uh, I think, was one of the founding members of the racer sessions, right? That's right. We also learned that from the uh, yep. Haley Friedland episode a couple yep. of months back. And he is involved in teaching at like Cornish College of the Arts, Lakeside, uh, the Seattle Saxophone Institute, SRJO. Um, I think he does some stuff at some other schools, too. Um, I mean, he's quite a busy guy when it comes to playing and teaching and composing and stuff, I learned that he's on over 700 recordings. That is a ridiculous amount. That's a lot of recordings. (laughs) That's like, uh, that's a
1: feat. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, we've got a particular recording that he just released called The Ink Around It. It's his new record. And why don't we just bring him in and start talking about it? Yeah. All right, let's do let's do it. Welcome, Neil. How's it going?
2: I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me on, Josh and Max. I really appreciate it. I'm so happy to be here.
1: We are super, super excited to do this. So before we get started talking about your illustrious career and this amazing record that you've got out, I want to tell a story. So the first time, Neil, that I heard you play was all the the way back in, I think maybe 2006 at the University of Washington. I was an entering freshman, and I think you were doing your senior recital. I unfortunately don't remember what music you were playing, but I remember thinking, oh, this is intimidating. This guy is so good and amazing. And it was just really, I was really blown away. And that was really exciting. And maybe the second or at some point later on time that I heard you play was when I was playing in Peter Schmeckley's quintet. And uh, you're nodding. I see that you remember this. Of course you remember this. Um, He I had been uh, rehearsing with Pete as part of the rhythm section. And then he brought you on saxophone and Scott Morning on trumpet to come in to fill in as the horn section for this quintet. And I think you had just won or been nominated or something, some kind of earshot award. I don't remember exactly what it was, but Pete was giving you crap for it and was saying like, oh man, we're not worthy to be in your presence this like Living Legend Walking Among Us, Earshot Award. And I just remember this hilarious thing you said. You said, I am so amazing. Even I am not worthy to be in my own presence. And I just still remember that. (laughs) I do not remember saying that. (laughs) So, needless to say, uh, we're very excited to have you here and talk about all the music that has happened
0: since. And yeah. so Holy cow, that's that's a crazy story. Max, why don't you get started? Um, Yeah, okay. So we're here to talk about Basically a record that you just put together, um, among other things. But it's called The Ink Around It. And it features two different songs. And th- there is a lot here. So the first song um, on this record is called Papoe. And so this is a solo saxophone piece. Um, and uh, there were some notes here. Papoe comes from the Potawatomi Native American language and translates as the force which causes mushrooms to push up from the earth overnight. Um, that's quite a visual and also quite an interesting thing to write a song about. So uh, as I was listening to this, um, you mentioned also that uh, you were trying to take the listener through your sonic interpretation of Fungi bursting forth, spreading spores, living and dying. Um, so this is not just a visual about uh, mushrooms growing and such. This is a full life cycle taking place. And I, I love music that has a story behind it and like a something I can visualize and think about. Um, this kind of took that like sensation to a whole new level when I listened to this song and this whole record actually. Um, but first of all, where did you get this idea? Um, like what made you write a song about this?
2: So I was reading this wonderful book that's called Braiding Sweetgrass and where I first heard this term. And like you're describing, it's just, it's just such a, you know, an illuminating term and really it got me thinking a lot about, the nature of language and how sometimes we define the terms of language through not only our experience, but just just the way that nature can bring about change in the way that we look at it. So I guess what I mean by that is that if I say, you know, the word Papuae, and I think about, um, you know, the term actually in and of itself, like bringing out change. Both for the person who is viewing it and kind of the way that it's described, I just think that in in music with sound we can bring we can bring about all these emotions and this whole character, characterization of just our imagination and thinking that I wanted to try and create with sound the kind of bursting forth quality that that language was bringing out just through the term itself. So really, it started with this very simple idea of can I create sounds that actually bring about this kind of pictorial quality that that term gave to me and from there really i i kind of took myself through this this kind of imagination journey thinking about the life cycle of this fungi and thinking about kind of my my place in the world as well, when I might be walking through the forest or I might be walking through an environment like that and thinking about the magical qualities of all the the natural environment around me. And then of course, the fact that I'm also part of the natural environment, although sometimes yeah. it doesn't feel like it, you know, being a, in an urban light landscape. So, so I wanted to bring um, that out through sound.
0: Before we even talk about actually how you're making some of these sounds and such, there is, um, and I'm no expert here, but Mycelium is kind of like the underground root structure of fungus and mushrooms. Is that right? As, as far as I understand? Yeah. So right. it's, it's uh, understanding. in this song, you used kind of a, a phrase that was kind of used to tie everything together, kind of like the mycelium would tie together this like family of, of mushrooms or fungus underneath the ground, right? Is that kind of what was going on?
2: Sure, sure. That that's yeah, that's very much a way to think about it. You know, we I, I think you're you're right about about drawing that parallel. Really what I wanted to do is try and take my own going back to that idea of language, my own native language that I really feel deeply in me, which is trying to create this sonic environment regardless of the performance style that I'm doing. So whether I'm playing more abstract music or I'm playing more traditional forms of jazz or classical music, really trying to bring out the the deepest qualities of kind of the environment that I'm playing in and the kind of style that I'm playing. So for me personally, when I'm trying to put myself into this place through this piece of music, I was thinking about the, na- the language that's become really native to me, which is just creating these things called multiphonics or split tone. I call them split tones. And then also using multiphonics and singing through the instrument. So I thought, you know, through that language, my own language, I might be able to bring out some of those sounds. Cool. Please do. You mind if so, I just play a couple yeah. of these just so you can hear what they sound like? Yeah, please do. Yeah, here's a few of them.
0: Yeah, right, this folks, has never happened very the first time we this have an actual
2: real... live we're instrument in the podcast lives. recording cool. studio. <laughs> so these these split tones just kind of bounce around throughout the, the piece of music and they're they're written one after the other and it just basically in an unbroken sequence but I have as an improviser I have the flexibility to um, kind of let them push and pull in different dynamics and different tempo but here's some of the sounds so in the piece I'll kind of bounce around between those different octaves and different clusters and then I'm also singing into the horn, so throughout the, the piece you'll you'll hear me singing whole, these little whole step clusters. And so as I'm playing, I'm going th- I'm developing this composition seeing it written on the page, but it, it actually came to be through a process of
1: improvisation hmm. working with, um, these, these small, uh, That's sound amazing. sounds. Amazing. <laughs> wow, that's really fascinating. Okay. I have so many questions about this. Normally when we have questions about the sound of a piece, we, we start playing the recording, the pre-recorded stuff that, um, our guests bring in, but it's really, really amazing to get to hear it live right here in front of me. And, uh, yeah, I. you mentioned that uh, some of this stuff is written down and I was actually very curious about this. One of the first things I wanted to ask you because I know uh, that you're well known in the Seattle scene and beyond as one of the most amazing free improv practitioners um, on the saxophone and uh, was wanting to hear from you how much of this is pre-written down, how much of this is free improv and um, how do they go together?
2: Well, first of all, just thank you for the compliment on my playing. Just, I just want to point out that there's so many players that are doing really amazing work and I'm one of the people on the scene who's lucky enough to get to play this instrument and explore these sounds. So um, the piece of music Actually, all of it in Papua in that piece, it's 100% Whoa. written out. Everything is written out. Wow. Which is, that came through a process of improvisation, um, sitting down, recording some of these sounds, and then thinking about how I wanted to structure them. So really, there's only about five or six of these little clusters. And then melody comes in, which uses smaller tones, quarter steps, eighth steps. In the sequence, like you were, Max, you were bringing up the mycelium before, um, I'll play again really quick, just
1: an example of kind of some of the strings of mycelium that I was thinking about. And for those of our listeners who are maybe not necessarily instrumentalists themselves, these quarter tones and eight steps are notes that exist in between keys on the piano. Is that about
2: right? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. That's cool. a great way to put it. And on the horn, they, they, um, they all speak a little different. Some are a little more muted, some a little brighter, but here's kind of the sound of these so some of them are through fingering systems and then also mouth shape but trying to think about these kind of the squiggle and the movement of these mycelium branching out and creating their structures and their connection points and so really for in the piece I was I thought I had to think in a much much longer time scale than I would mm. ever tr- mm-hmm. really think about typically during an improvisation um with something on this scale. So I'm, you know, it's a it's about a 17-18 tw- minute long piece and using such in the end really a limited amount of material. I really had to think about how I wanted to develop that so-
1: on the whole. Ah, fascinating. These microtonal stuff, like the way you're playing this uh linearly like you just did, it sounds so uh glidey and uh, I guess kind of like a, a continuous pitch spectrum that's not something that a lot of instruments are doing all the time. So it's really, really cool to hear you, uh, um, hear yeah. you play that way. I,
0: so you. I was going to ask you about this a little bit later, but um, and we still might get to that as well. How did you kind of come up with a system of naturally hearing these sounds as sounds you would make in music? Yeah, like quarter tones, microtones, stuff like that, because most people will have maybe access to a keyboard or a piano or something that is tuned the way that most instruments are tuned in the Western world. Um, how did you kind of familiarize yourself with these other pitches and, and figure out how to use them musically?
2: Uh, thanks for that question so there there is actually a really rich tradition of the the use of shakes and bends and turns in jazz music specifically on the saxophone and the one sound that really came to mind for me was this there's this particular Mm. shake that ben webster the saxophonist ben webster did this is like the 1930s 1940s where he's like shaking between an a flat and a B flat and he actually creates it is a multiphonic And he, but he's kind of moving up and down, up and down, uh, 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 kind of shaking back and forth on it. And so (laughs) I heard that, I mean, a long time ago when I was, you know, like middle school or something and that I figured out how to do it. And then that naturally led me to think, you know, how many more of these things are in the instrument? Mm. And so it was that, that was kind of the spark as time passed and I became more, um, you know, into players who are doing really extraordinary things with these techniques, like the saxophonist Evan Parker, John Butcher, um, these, you know, these players have a phenomenal palette of different sonic colors that they draw from. And so it was really figuring out, to be honest, a lot of it on my, just through my own self exploration, um, where these things lie on the instrument. And
1: you're discovering new fingering patterns for multiphonics that other people aren't playing to as well, or?
2: Well, I don't know. It's a it's a little hard to say sometimes because you know there are a few published books and printed resources for saxophonists to look at and say, oh, you know, here's a way to get a specified sound or color. Sure. But really, a lot of these are passed sonically from one player to another player, hearing something and going, oh, whoa, how are you doing that? You know, and uh, and so in in 2013, I did this project that was called Twelve Moons, where I recorded a improvisation every day for a year. During that project i f- I ended up writing down something like about three hundred wow. different multiphonic fingerings, oh my gosh, and there's lots of stuff like that's printed, but really in the end, it what it comes down to is can can you use it? Can mm, you mm-hmm. recreate it for sure. And so, a lot of the ones that, like, I'm using in this piece are ones that I can pick up my horn and they're and they're my native language. You know, I can pick them up and I can play them, and I hear them in my head. And I can, um, you know, as I became more familiar with what they sound like, I wanted I wanted that, to hear them. Uh, if
0: you yeah. can play what you sing or what you hear in your head, then you're, you know, you're being true to the music that you want to create. I think that's very true, and you do an excellent job at this. Um, yeah. You also mentioned. Uh, Thank you. Letting, let's see. I actually wrote this down because it was so interesting to me. Um, letting the room absorb and refract the sounds of the horn is kind of part of how you think about what you're playing. Um, and I think that's really interesting because when you think about uh, playing solo like this, you have a lot of possibilities and you do such a great job with. Um, thinking outside the box when it comes to ways of being expressive with what you're playing. And I was just kind of struck by that phrase um, because that adds like a whole other dimension to timing and stuff, at least for me. I was was like, Whoa, letting the room absorb the sound Hmm. as part of, I mean, I guess we as musicians naturally kind of tend to do that to a certain extent um, just by default, but Really thinking about that as like a an aspect of how to how to play or even improvise or, or compose is just fascinating to me. I think that's super cool that you kind of use that type of thing thinking in your playing. Um. Well, well thank you. I, I I wonder
2: if you know. It, any, anybody who's out there listening you know has ever had a chance to go play in the forest <laughs> or play in any any resonant environments where you really get to hear sound bouncing off the trees or bouncing down into a valley or against rocks or river and around it's a quite a unique experience especially when you're when you're really accustomed to just like you know maybe just playing in your own room and doing your thing by yourself or maybe in a, even in a really resonant performance hall, it's just totally different to be able to turn your body one direction to the other and get a totally different sonic imprint that's Mm -hmm. coming back to your ears. And so when I recorded that, this piece of music specifically, actually, I had hoped originally to do it in, in the forest. And it did not work out to be able to do it, but I found a, in a, a really nice acoustic environment in, in a, um, in an old church and just, kind of playing into one specific part of the room that really was very accepting of all these different sounds I was putting into the horn hmm. and grabbing them and doing these just beautiful, beautiful things with them. So there's really not a lot of post-production work actually done on that recording. It's A, wow. a lot of that is the room sound there. So beautiful. It was, yeah, it was finding things which can really bring out these, these colors from the horn.
0: Yeah, that was so cool. I have a story really quick, actually, if you don't mind so i had a a band if you could call it that briefly called the ad hoc bridge band and what it was it was me and a tenor saxophonist and an upright bass player Uh, and we would play on this bridge over ravenna park you know maybe once a week or so and at one point somebody stopped by and told us we were the ad hoc bridge band hence the name and we were like well that's kind of cool maybe we could be the ad hoc whatever else band so we started going to other places. We went to like the, the desert one day, and and we would video record ourselves just playing in these weird places. Um, I think we did like under the uh, Fremont Bridge or whatever with the troll, the Aurora Bridge um, in the desert. We went to like some random meadows, and then one day we decided to go to the redwoods on a, on a whim, um, which is like a solid. I don't know how many hour drive, at least eight or ten or something. And we drove down there, uh, found a nice spot in the Redwoods to set up and play, and got everything out to play. And then the sound of the silence in the, that forest was so deafening that we actually mm. couldn't play. Mm. We just had to put everything back away and just hang out for a bit. And, and then we just headed back. But it was, I would never experienced something like that. Or the sound of silence could be so like powerful that you didn't want to disrupt it. That is beautiful. That's very interesting. Yeah. It was just a slightly related story that I would tell it.
1: Yeah. Well, we've done a lot of talking about this music and heard little clips of the techniques that you use to put into it, but I think it we'd be remiss if we don't jump into a little clip of this right away. So for all of our listeners, here is a section of poopoey. Oh, my God.
3: Well, <smart noise> <smart noise>
1: Absolutely different. You talked about uh, how playing in a specific space, there's resonances there that change the sound. And of course, anybody who's an instrumentalist or anybody who's done recording knows that the room you're in or the space you're in is going to affect the sound. But there's something guttural and viscerally different about hearing those multifonics from your horn in that space versus hearing them right in front of me here in this room. Mm-hmm. And of course it's really beautiful and real and cool to hear it right here, but there's, it's, it's deep, it's lush, and it's kind of all encompassing bathing of sound. And it's just, it's yeah. a
0: very, very beautiful piece. Thank, Thank you. Um, Gorgeous work. I just work. had one more Thank question you. about this one. Um, and this is again, kind of talking about some of the ways that you are able to express yourself musically on your horn that most people have really don't um and that is kind of the gray area between uh the length of sounds and length lengths of silence um in what you're playing and it seems like you're able to really hmm. dance around in that gray area quite a bit um and it's really cool i love, <laughs> I love what you're doing with this music um and i don't even know if you ha- happen to be able to explain what you're doing in that sense, but. I just wanted to kind of highlight that that was one of the things that really stuck out to me in this piece.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for that. You know, some of the, some of the sounds really, especially coming from the instrument, they, they resonate at their best through the room and, you know, other Mm -hmm. ones resonate really close to the horn. Mm -hmm. And so when I, when I'm recording it in particular, Actually had mics that were set up really close oh, to the saxophone, and they had mics that were set up that were way in the back of the room.
1: Oh, interesting!
2: Just to get just to get the fullest picture possible, because when I'm playing, you know, these single melody lines, it's like more traditional kind of saxophone playing in a way, you know, where it projects relatively well you know right th- to my ears right in front of me and then to the listener who might be like say 10 feet in front of me or 20 feet in front of me or something like that mm-hmm. but other sounds they you hear almost like they're sympathetic vibrations more some of those multiphonic things and the singing through the horns, like you hear you hear more kind of blooming frequency versus definite attack and so they're that kind of inherently you know, since, since I, I, I'm hearing the music that way as well. And then listening to its response in the room, that really plays with my expectation about how I'm going to be pacing the piece. So if I kind of lean into playing some little clusters a little quick, more quickly, it's like you get layering of chords that are happening, but the layering is not just the attack. It might just be like the vibration of the sound yeah. kind of in its decay. And then I go into a single note melody like the quarter steps and things that we were talking about a little while ago, they're a little bit more defined. And so you hear that, just hearing that definition of those sounds brings your, to me as a listener, brings my ear just whoo, really intimately, very close mm-hmm, versus mm-hmm. the other little clusters. They feel very far away. And so that really plays with my, how I pace the piece and the speed and the, sil- the, the tiny bits of silence that exist. Cause otherwise it's really a very active piece the silent the true silences only really happen right. after that there's yeah the well if you dance around
0: it. through that there's it's just so cool <laughs> yeah um
2: thank you thank you
1: cool so i want to throw back to uh back to the title of the piece and the the original impetus, impetus for this which we talked about at the beginning of our conversation so The title of this piece is Popoe, which is from the Potawatomi language, which we had talked about a little earlier, which is an indigenous Native American language uh, from, I think, the center of the United States. And I'm curious, what's your connection to the language specifically and also this word?
2: So I don't have a personal connection to the language or um, the Potawatomi Native American people, but the book Uh, braiding sweetgrass which i had mentioned earlier really really spoke to me in the idea of of language being something that can bring about an illumination of the environment Hmm. and for me personally it's i i i struggle to find that connection in a lot of the language that i use in my day-to-day life just as specifically as an english speaker but i feel that i can bring about a lot of illuminated language through my instrument And so reading, reading this passage in the book and reading, um, you know, learning this word specifically, it actually gave, I I just, it gave me pause because it it made me realize that I'm encountering a language that is actually quite different. I'm from completely different cultural background. And yet I Found that through sound, I was able to find kind of an inroad into this, into this term, kind of through my own interpretation of it, sure. of course. But and that that that's what really spoke to me. Once I once I read that and really tried to create that sound through the instrument, that Very that cool. really to help to illuminate so those sounds. Language, to me. Um,
0: yeah, that's lovely. musical language, you know, up until now in this album has been solo, but the entire album is not solo saxophone. Um, you have a bunch of incredibly talented musicians joining you on the second piece on this album. And I was hoping we could start talking about this one um, just in the interest of time. <laughs> we could talk about this forever, but there's so much stuff I want to get to. Um, could we maybe jump right into Concepcion Picciotto and and listen to a snippet of it and then talk about it?
1: Great. Yeah, let's do it.
0: So we just heard a, a clip from the second piece on this album called Concepcion Picciotto. And this is by no means the entirety of the song. Uh, this is quite an opus, if you will. And it is. there are many other aspects to this that you're going to have to listen to on your own. But to dive right into this, uh, from my understanding, Concepcion Picciotto was a person. Uh, she was an anti-nuclear peace activist that conducted the longest continuously running political protest in the history of the United States from 1981 to 2016, um, as far as I understand. And she, yeah, she lived apparently directly across That's the street right. from the White House that entire time. Is is that right? Right. Six, <laughs> six,
2: yeah. 1601. <laughs> that is, Pennsylvania Avenue, the center of the American the American world, right there. As far as uh, yeah, as far as wow, uh, the Yeah, that is, is quite
0: a dedication, um, and quite a timely uh, name of the song, actually, uh, given current world events. But yeah, so what uh, inspired this piece, and and why now?
2: So I had heard of Concepcion Picciotto from um a Michael Moore hmm. film actually Fahrenheit 911. she has like a, a flat kind of a flashing cameo in that and I had I had also been actually kind of made aware of her of her peace protest around that time too and so I I had my knowledge of her work was very limited but when she passed away um you know being aware that um, you know, she had participated in this incredibly long protest. I mean thirty 35 ish years protesting in front of the White House for nuclear disarmament as a homeless individual is just just an absolutely stunning achievement, you know, if you think about it. And I just was so inspired by that longevity and that mission and the fact that she chose to work for work, work on behalf of nuclear disarmament, really for, on behalf of us all, you know, on behalf of all of humanity. Um, I, I quickly realized it was something that was so, of such enormity that I wanted to try and create a piece that could try and bring, yeah. bring out that hugeness, you know? And um, so that's the, the very, the kind of the very nature of the composition, like you're talking about. Um, I, I really tried to bring out the, just the very nature of, um,
1: you know, my interpretation of that experience. Yeah, it's beautiful. You mentioned in your notes that this is a piece that you spent a long time on, that, that, it, or it, that it took two years to complete this composition. That's not 16 years, but it's also no small amount of time to be working on a, on a singular piece. How did you go about that? Or were you working on just this this whole time? Or um, did you bounce back and forth between different projects? And how does working on something that takes so much time uh, fill your life? And how does that feel?
2: So I I did actually work on the piece, really ongoing, workshopping it for a couple of years, in addition to many, many other pieces of music as well. Mm. But there, you know, Max Early, you talked about your bridge band. Yeah, ad hoc bridge band. Is is that (laughs) what you called it? Yeah. So I think I know the exact spot you're talking about in the Ravenna Woods, because I... Every summer there had done a a concert called the Secret no Forest way. Show where we put on this this <laughs> performance for for folks that have to hike in there. Yeah, awesome. awesome. And it's, it took took place right under the bridge, and uh, I wrote the piece for a Secret Forest Show, and it was mm. a way way more watered down version of it. And it the the concert that we do it's it has it's about twenty minutes of music. So if you're going to compose something, twenty minutes of music yeah. is a lot of music to write. Yeah. And especially for, um, you know, what is more an informal setting. So I I had to create a wide body material and basically gave it a first go with an instrumentation that's actually pretty similar to what ended up being on the album. Hmm. And my own process usually is, you know, something really speaks to me. I'll really lean into it and I'll see it through. But typically that doesn't involve a two-year process on a single piece. I've just, I've never done that before. So that's, for for me, um, that, that really require me to step up, um, you know, as a composer and, um, you know, just trying to, trying to develop the piece, workshop, the piece, play it, perform it, and continuously try to shape it into, um, you know, what you actually end up hearing at the end of the album. So it was really, it, it, it asked a lot of me personally. Um, and it's, it, it, it really helped My me hat grow is off to artist, you. I will definitely That's say that.
0: quite an accomplishment. Um, There's, there are a lot of different sections here with a lot of different energies and a lot of different, uh, things happening and just thematically, um, were there any things that you were kind of thinking about to kind of, uh, anything you were really trying to represent with this piece? Um, any aspects to the music that might represent specific things or anything? Um, I had a couple ideas, but I wanted to just hear what you had to say about that first.
2: Sure. So the unlike Pupu Wei, there's no direct correlation between sonically what I'm doing and the, the, um, the protest, except for the fact that her message was very clear and present and really, um, I'm trying to think of a better word to use than saying a, a more kind of an aggressive form of protest, but she was definitely the kind of protester that was out there you know, very, very, um, plain spoken, loudly spoken. Um, and I really, to me, I thought that this requires a theme that has that kind of power. And I wanted to try and create a theme that would be kind of threaded throughout the piece of music. And that to me was like Concepcion's call. Hmm. And so, um, here, here's that melody. I'll just play it real quick. (laughs) So that theme gets played a number of times and the, the vocalist on the piece who does a just a phenomenal job, Danielle Reuter Hera, mm-hmm. that, that is really her melodic call throughout the piece of music that gets um, repeated yeah, time that's and that's what I was
0: hearing. Beautiful. Um, the it almost seems like there are different like movements to this piece. Um, maybe not literally, but to me that was kind of symbolizing different shifts in in macro world events and trends and things. Um, and I was just kind of visualizing 35 ish years of time, not that I've even actually been alive for that long. <laughs> That's, uh, but uh, close to it. But um, just imagining like this crazy shifting landscape of, of what's happening in the world uh, around what conception was doing. That was kind of a really vivid image in my head when I was listening to this. It was really cool. So
2: when I think about Concepcion and her work, you know, her, her steadfast mission there went through five different political administrations. Wow. And you think about all the change that happened in the world during that time, but a constant is the threat of nuclear, uh, nuclear catastrophe you know that is mm-hmm. that is an ever-present danger in our world and and in the piece of music i did want to touch on this kind of wide diaspora of ex, of 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 experience like you talked about you know um the ebb, kind of the ebb and flow in the piece of music and the different um almost sections or movements that are in it when I first wrote the piece, it had something like 20 different micro sections and then it got whittled down and then eventually it got kind of placed into these these like kind of long periodic sections where there's these undulations of sound. And in some ways I did think about the idea of like street protests taking place, the same kind of street protests taking mm-hmm. place in wintertime mm-hmm. as it does in the scorching summer heat, you know, mm-hmm. two extremes where you still have the same mission, you still have the same person, you still have the same call for action but the literal physical environment pressing down. And so ideas like that absolutely played a role in where I wanted to try and sculpt an improvisation. Thinking about time on a very, on a long scale, but also thinking about the very specific events that that take place within those scales. Um,
0: So go
1: ahead. So, oh, I wanted to shift gears a little and talk about some of the sounds that we're hearing. Um, and I'm looking at the list of the instruments that are on this piece. There's four different saxophones of different sizes and four different stringed instruments of different sizes, drums, and a vocalist. And I think that's it, uh, and a conductor, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and vocals is something that I want to bring into here because oftentimes when there's a vocal, a vocalist with a big ensemble, the vocals is the at the very forefront singing a bunch of words, and that's where the message comes from. And of course, there are places in this piece where vocals are front and center, but it's not every time. And uh, there are large sections of wordless vocals for which the vocals are part of the ensemble. And I just found that a very, very fascinating texture, having a single vocal that is blending together with the rest of the ensemble. And so I wanted to talk to you about that a little bit and ask you, uh, how did you go about arranging this and thinking about vocals as not vocals in front instruments behind it, but... Vocals as a vocalist as part of the ensemble together
2: that's a that's a really good question and thanks thanks for that observation too um, so when i'm when I'm thinking about this ensemble writing and the orchestration of the piece I was really trying to take into account all these different instruments that were um, interacting together and a word that always comes to my mind when I'm thinking about composing or improvising as well as is, is texture you know what are the different textures that are being used and to me texture is a very it's a very wide term in my mind it, it what what gets kind of folded into that is an individual performer's contribution sonically as far as like the timbre of their voice or what the techniques physically that they can do on their instrument that they might be able to bring out and for the vocal part in this piece i really wanted I want I I did want a female vocalist um, because I wanted that in a way to just be a direct correlation to Concepción Picciotto. I wanted the vocalist to be able to have that kind of quality that would really cut through as you know thinking about her being the um, you know the, the sole driver in this in in her own protest movement and I wanted the vocal to have that at the same time I wanted there to be this idea of unification hmm. and so the 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 protest that Concepción Picciotto is fighting for um, as previously mentioned, you know this is this is a global protest. This is one you know one individual and and I should also say a collective of individuals that were often with her and rotating but really in the in the end, what it comes down to is that call to action to all of us, and I wanted the vocal to represent that so the vocalist um, Daniel Hera in the piece actually does this. I-, I wanted her to take her hand and put her hand in front of her mouth to make this muted sound while she was singing. So at times, you'll if you now that you know that if you listen to the piece and listen to her some of her vocalizations, you'll hear this very outwardly spoken protest and mm-hmm. then the world kind of trying to mute her. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. was and I and I wanted that to actually cut come through on the recording. And so that's an example of you know a technique that I wanted to to be heard, but I also wanted that to be part of the ensemble blend sound, not necessarily the main vocalist or the main driver of the emotive quality of the piece. I wanted the, the yeah. message of the piece to be coming through um, on the whole through all the instruments.
1: That's a beautiful sonic metaphor. Thank you yeah. for explaining the, the, the meaning behind it. That gives so much more depth to the sounds that I've been hearing weeks. I had another question, of
0: um, sort of yeah. tying into something we talked about briefly before, but Um, microtonal harmony is in play here and Mm -hmm. it's all over the place and it sounds beautiful and you've done a great job with it, which is incredible because I've heard a lot of microtonal music that really didn't, uh, speak to me for lack of a better way of saying that, um, this is awesome music and I am just blown away by how you've managed to use, semitones microtones quarter tones all of these things um, in such a musical way um, Have you studied like microtonal harmony theory and stuff? How did you figure out how to do all this
2: yeah uh, th- uh, thank you for that you know, first of all max thank you for that um, so i I studied some microtonal theory while I was in college, but really the work that I've done has been ex- actually mm. going back to solo music, exploring through solo music. and, and a lot of it is rooted in um, these multiphonics. And so and f- for me, I okay, so it's it's kind of starts like this. It's like if I hear these microtonal sounds that exist within the natural state of the multiphonic, then I go, okay, mm. that's a given expression of the instrument what does that sound like against more tonal harmony does it work with tonal harmony so it's mm. sort of a trial yeah. and error aspect of in that in that aspect but also thinking about what is naturally given to me through the instrument that was a great starting point for me to start to think how can i use this with more tonal harmony and then from there it was really really a process of over many many years p- collaborating with other people and working on composition that starts to integrate these sounds and in the in the composition you hear I really tried to have very transparent yeah. chords that are very open um paired with these more tense discordant um, uh uh microtonal harmony landscapes. So I really at all times tried That's to think so about cool. the two coexisting. And so it yeah and a, and a lot of that is with me s- sitting at the piano working with chord with chord color <laughs> So, and then working oh, with my instrument to uh-huh. bring those out. And this is, this is. I'll just say, the last thing I'll say about that is just, for for me as a composer, I, I think of myself as, number one, I am an improviser. That's number one. So everything I do, I improvise. Uh-huh. And I will begin uh-huh. to compose based off of improvisation. And the saxophone is an instrument that I feel very comfortable with, but it's the never-ending, you know, it is the never-ending search on this thing. Uh-huh. Um and the piano that is not an instrument that i am comfortable with to any degree as close to as the saxophone so i comp- I, I start with the saxophone Interesting. and then i work to the so piano so you're
0: mm-hmm. you're kind of thinking about this approach to harmony i mean basically as you add more variables to to something you get in, you know exponentially more possibilities or in this case more specific harmonic sounds that you can make um so you're thinking about kind of applying things that you've heard through trial and error and and through other people that you've met and such, on top of or or in conjunction with tonal, like traditional harmony that you like on a piano and stuff. So you're kind of thinking about those working together. Interesting.
2: I think that's a, that's a good way to put it.
0: Yeah, which is,
2: which which I think is, is no, that's pretty really cool about me as a composer. <laughs> that really, really what it is, is it's, 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 um, you know, to call something trial and error is, oh, yeah. in a way, I think every composer can relate to that, but, absolutely um, yeah, you know, but, but really it, it, I think what it speaks to mm-hmm. is that first and foremost, I'm an instrumentalist, mm-hmm. you know, and and co- co- for me, composition comes from being, doing my, trying to do my best work as an instrumentalist. And the more, you know, you brought up earlier, like, where did you start hearing all these, these, color or sounds and things it's like a slowly but surely adding them into the palette of what i find to be very interesting sound my my ears are naturally drawn to that so if you mind? i'll just play one last example that's from the clip that we listened to please do i'm gonna look at on the sheet music because i don't have this one memorized
1: it's uh, a <laughs> half an hour of music man I think you're well forgiven for not having all that memorized
2: so this little little part I'll display really briefly is from near the end of the piece and what it, it does is it, it uses exactly what we're talking about here it's like more traditional harmony and tempered pitch mixed with multiphonics and and semitones and I composed those into the violin part, which is playing um, either unison with me or we're we're essentially 2T throughout this section, but sometimes the violin will also be thickening the chord clusters that I'm playing. Mm -hmm. And then beneath that, the ensemble is doing very, very strict tonal harmony against it. And so those kind of two worlds kind of exist in parallel. So here's an example of that so you know the piece it it's it's in four it grooves but it's got these different kind of kind of chord sonic things which come out yeah. I call them blooms, these kind of sonic blooms mm. and, I, and I really I really like that sound along with the violin specifically I do too. so I wrote, it, I wrote it for those two instruments um, there
0: so Josh and I were privy to some pretty cool notes that you sent us ahead of time for this podcast and a couple of things that you mentioned in those notes were that you came up with this melody while you were hiking in the mountains in the Pacific Northwest is that right? With a horn in hand, nonetheless. I did, yeah. Um, That's really cool. And so, I mean, first of all, that really helps this album flow, I think, um, from the first song to the second. Um, But uh, I wanted to ask, um, you also mentioned that you heard some bird sounds and incorporated those into this piece as well. And in addition to that um, group singing a little bit as well. And I was kind of thinking about this. And right. um, when I think of bird calls and music and group singing and music, those two things uh, from what I've learned or studied or whatever is kind of that those are some of the most ancient ways of um, playing music or coming up with ways of playing music. And mm-hmm. so this, Kind of struck me as like a um, a callback to where humans come from, and then I was thinking about the mushrooms and mycelium and kind of just the ancient um, aspects to this music that you're making. and I was just wondering if you were thinking about that when you decided to incorporate these elements to the music.
2: You know humans being being a part of the natural environment. Our music comes from, you know, I think the music, the music comes from the natural environment one way or the other. And I think that a lot of, you know, it's no surprise then that a lot of musical forms from antiquity do use drone-based forms and vocalization to create mood. And in the vocalization of the piece, a lot of the group singing, I did really want to create this idea of us as a species going way, way, cool. way back and to to and to use the idea of drone of that some of that being played over a drone or over um you know essential- essentially like some very basic kind of scales but being applied in very different a different kind of way within the piece, so it coming from these thicker textures and then all of a sudden kind of breaking down into group work where that might be unison ensemble seeing the same um melodic kind of melodic line beneath a drone, but again, the dr- kind of the drone that I'm using, this kind of fundamental sound that's going on, it's being played by the saxophone underneath and the double bass underneath, which gives it this very open kind of otherworldly kind of sound, because again, I'm using these very quietly played multiphonics, but to have this kind of ancient, for lack of a better better word, ancient, or kind of sound from antiquity coming through, that doesn't, to me, I was trying not to create a melodic sound that was really defined by any kind of one genre i just wanted it to be human sound Mm. so there's that against the bird sound which i wanted to sound very much specifically like bird sound i wanted to like bring somebody into the forest with that so there's a couple i i had actually gone into um into the woods a number of times and was transcribing bird bird song and so there's this one that's called like i believe it's called the swanson's thrush that's this uh sounds like this (laughs)
4: <laughs> it's a Whoa. sort of whirly sound that kind of
2: twirls up ooh, wow ooh. and so and if you slow it down you know it it actually miraculously it's actually a um because now we're getting really detailed here but it's actually <laughs> it's actually a um augmented triad that's going like and but it's happening so fast, you can't really. It's Whoa. hard to kind of pick up on that. But we, <laughs> fascinating. But yeah, so think you know, sounds like that. I wanted to bring that and put that into the piece. So you have these like you're directly brought brought into an environment, which is like, oh, this feels to me like a forest here. Mm-hmm. And another another person who was working on the project said, this sound, this scene, this part of the music sounds kind of nautical. I was like, I don't, I don't specifically know what you mean, <laughs> but it does sound like it's like there's something about like being on some like old wooden rolling ship in the sea, you know, I don't, I, you know, that, that to me also feels very human and very ancient. So there are these things. Yeah, I mean, some that of the most ancient in, music sure. that I've
0: studied is from West Africa and it's uh, literally group singing uh, of basically transcribed bird songs with um, other rhythms and, and dance elements and such as well. Mm-hmm. But I was just kind of curious if you had any of that in mind while you came up with this, but that's really cool um and that I, the detail that <laughs> you've transcribed that bird call with is astounding <laughs> that's crazy that's so cool wow
2: well thanks and that, that 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 has been that has been done in in um you know classical music specifically for a very long time transcribing actual bird call but i i wanted to do it in a, in a different yeah. a different capacity here and like when you're talking about music from um, you know, West Africa that might, you know, is re- literally a direct parallel of the national environment of people ar- uh, around you. You know, that to me Absolutely. is the kind of use I wanted to make of of Burke Hall. So I, I did not, yeah, I did not spe- specifically reference any musical tradition yeah. from that, but I wanted to get that Beautiful. spirit. I wanted that spirit to be in there, and that really is, in a way, that's a direct parallel to the other piece, proper way. Like I wanted to, I I wanted the the album to be balanced in that way that they're both that they're both a reflection of the natural world but one is ultimately about you know this precious natural this one beautiful world that we have that we that we are it's important for us to be stewards of and that we directly are threatening this through nuclear proliferation and then the beautiful the beautiful pers- persistent nature of um you know the natural world doing what it does yeah. which is finding a way to continue
0: so- I also wanted to address that a little bit as well. Um, I mean, for one thing, I was wondering, you know, just if this was intentionally released uh, now, given current events or not, but also, um, I mean, basically if you consider the life cycle of mycelium and mushrooms, its relationship to the rest of the environment and humanity, uh, the risk of rising nuclear war at the moment, um, this is all a bunch of, really heavy subject matter to talk about or make music about. And I was wondering what your take on um, walking that balance between playing like for fun music and, and playing music about some really heavy subject matter uh, where that balance lies and how you choose to navigate it. That's a lot.
2: <laughs> so yeah, there's there's a kind of that's, that's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot in there, and I, I I so I I think that you know the the threat of nuclear war is to me it's it's ever present. Um, you know, it there there are times where it spikes, and you know, right literally right now as this podcast is being made, like. We're in a period mm-hmm. where we're all of a sudden talking about that with a Russian invasion of Ukraine and Chernobyl, and uh, you know that is like all of a sudden, bam, it's just right back in our face. But to me, you know, to me, I I can't escape the fact that you know Concepcion Picciotto's persistency over thirty thirty five years working toward, to keep this message in people's mind and giving her, you know, her life and dedication to this cause shows that it is in that, in that ever-present way, a part of our lives, whether we choose to think about it or not. And so as an artist, I, I, you know, when I, f- I felt, I guess I'll call it a call, to, you know, a call to action in that way to create a piece of music that I could do my best work to try and bring out, um, you know, from within myself, I, you know, you know, my own reflection of, of, um, you know, my, my, I guess my experience at this time and place, thinking about um, where we are in the world with nuclear proliferation. And yeah, that's very um, heavy subject matter. And um, so it's, it's, it's balanced in a way by the fact that, you know, I'm, an, I'm an improviser. And so, you know, as a result, I'm going to be every day is going to bring something new in my musical world. You know, sometimes it's going to be sounds of joy, sometimes sounds of sorrow. So, um, you know, I've, I'm fortunate to play in a lot of different projects. Some projects you really, you know, we, I think as artists, we've all, you guys, you two are, you know, phenomenal musicians and artists. Um, and I, I know you've experienced this too, where you you dedicate yourself so intensely towards a project. And then you have that beautiful experience where you go, okay, I did it. I did that. That's, that's mm-hmm. done now. What's next? You know? <laughs> and so for me, it was like, this was what was up on my plate next. And I didn't know it was quite going to take so long, <laughs> you know, but that's just the way when something's meaningful to you, that's, that's just the way it is. Sometimes you you see it through to its end. and I'm I, sure I this was an will, incredibly fulfilling that.
0: piece to finish. I mean,
2: yeah. Very much so. Yeah. And to finally, especially coming oh, out yeah. of COVID to finally get to play, you know, to finally mm-hmm. get to play live for people. is very important wow.
1: to me. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us to talk about this really gorgeous. Epic is a good word (laughs) project. And I don't really know if there's any other word that I can think of really quickly to describe the enormity of uh, the subject matter that you're tackling, but also the sonic landscape from how much you can create and conjure up with a single instrument from the first piece and how big, the ensemble sounds in the second piece, and they flow so beautifully together. So, thank you. We also thank wanted you. to talk about, uh, ask you about what other projects our listeners can be watching out for. Uh, do you have any shows coming down the pipe, or other bands you're a part of, or or performances maybe that you want to uh, call out?
2: So every Monday, I play with the Royal Room Collective Music Ensemble. Uh, which is led by wayne horvitz down at the Royal room in south seattle and i really recommend that folks check this out it's a it's a large ensemble think of it as sort of um you know almost like akin to a big band but it's doing music which is um, a language called conduction and um, wayne horvitz was um you know it's one of the people who's really brought this sound to seattle um specifically the conduction style of butch morris doing music which is somewhat composed and then also uses these hand symbols and repetition to create um different kind of layers of sound, but also also movements in the music. So that the, the actually what's written as sheet music is really, mm. in a lot of ways, only a starting point. Mm. And, um, you know, a parallel for I think uh, maybe a lot of people could think about would be um, like the music of like Charlie Mingus. I, I think about that. Um, I'm not sure quite, quite how Wayne and the, Royal, the other members of the Royal, Royal Collective Ensemble might think about, about it. But to me, when I think about Mingus, you know, you might have um, – you know, themes which are just really, really captivating and they get tossed around the ensemble and reinterpreted and come and go and layered. Um, And so the the Rome Collective Ensemble is really doing music, which is really playing with beautiful themes and interesting sounds. And you get all the unique personalities that are in the band that shine through on every performance. And some of Seattle's most phenomenal players, um, you've got people in the ensemble, there regularly sam boschnack on trumpet chris credit on tenor james falzone on clarinet um, ryan burns on piano eric eagle on drums and i could keep on going but um, just a few of the familiar names that a lot of you will know from the seattle jazz scene all of those people are um, their stars in that band and get to really create some some uh, beautiful sounds beautiful every monday night at the road i have heard
0: that group one time and it was really cool
1: yeah and it's, I have also had the pleasure of listening to that group and it is very beautiful music. Thank you. And uh, just shout out some other projects that I know that you're a part of that um, are Bad Luck with Chris Acaciano as a duo is some really, really beautiful work too. I'm kind of curious if there's anything else you two are cooking up recently.
2: Right now we're not. You know, he's, um, you know, the other half of that band is um, going to be doing some pretty extensive touring coming up. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to ramp it back up uh, in the fall, which nice. I'm really looking forward to. Cool. And that's that's a first for that band because we've been doing weekly rehearsals and performing live every single month for like Whoa. 15 years. Oh my so gosh, that's a long time. <laughs> so to take a little time off like that in a way has, um, is an adjustment, I'll call it that. But yeah. uh, we hope to really speaking be back of Chris, with that he band. He was also on that well, I'm sure uh, there
0: are a lot of people piece on this album. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yes, right. I'm sure a lot of us are uh, listeners are looking forward to the return of Bad Luck in the Fall as well. So it's nice to hear that. Thank you. Cool. So there is one other project that I know that you've been a part of in the past that I don't think has been active in a little bit. And I've always been really curious about this, although I've never heard about it. Isn't there something called Santa Neal with a soprano saxophone? (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit about this thing?
2: yeah with santa neil and the kringles that yeah, once a year smooth jazz christmas band um we have tried COVID unfortunately threw a wrench into that but um yeah we hope to be back at a at a holiday a, a once a year holiday event near you which is going to be at uh, cafe racer fantastic
1: hopefully yeah we're, we're, we're shooting
2: for 2022
1: so if i remember yeah. right this is a once a year smooth jazz christmas band that you're playing soprano and doing a bunch of kenny g covers Oh yeah, something like this. Yeah,
2: you're just hitting all the greats: Kenny G, Michael Bolton, and all you know. Phenomenal!
1: (laughs) (laughs) What a completely wildly different direction from all the music we were just listening to and talking about. This is great. Uh, For our listeners who want to check out more of your stuff and find out what you're up to musically, where's the best way for uh, people to check out? Social media, website.
2: Yeah, I encourage people to check out neowelch.com N-E-I-L-W-E-L-C-H.com, where, um, you know, as long as I remember to do it, I'll upload all my current
1: gigs. That's true. Because there are gigs again, which is wonderful. Wonderful. And the ink around it is available uh, through that website as well? It is. That's great. Yeah, seriously. Well, thank you, Thank Neil. you so much for joining us. This has been a wonderful discussion about incredibly beautiful and deeply meaningful music. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you Josh, thank you Max for having me. It's been a, it's been just a total pleasure. I appreciate it.